at all. Of course it's not. Our life is in God and in Christ. And I shared with you a few weeks ago this passage of Scripture in 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and what? I will heal their land. I'm praying many things through these days, but one of my main prayers is that God will accomplish His purposes for this. I believe God is at work. I believe He is using this virus in a variety of ways. I see His hand in it. Not that He caused it, but our sovereign God can use anything for His own ends. I pray that I will and I pray that we will, out of all of this, learn to be a people that loves the Lord with all of our heart, seeks Him, serves Him, obeys Him, trusts Him with all of our heart. Today, I want us to pick up where we left off before this virus hit. The next response we find in Scripture that's connected with the phrase, with all your heart, is return to the Lord with all your heart. Jeremiah 24, 7, God says to His people, Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. Why do we need to return to the Lord? Well, because God's a holy God, and He cannot abide with sin. And our sin creates a distance between us and God. You see, sin cannot break our relationship with God, but it does hinder our fellowship with God. And the Bible is full of people whose sin created the need for them to return to God. And as we look at some of these people, we'll see what led to their sin. We'll see how God made a way for them to come back to Him. And we'll see the steps they took in returning to Him. Now, a few weeks ago, we started looking at Adam and Eve. What created that distance for them, between them and God, was that they succumbed to temptation. Today, I want us to look in Luke chapter 15 at the account of the prodigal son and see where his life took a left turn away from God and then how he returned. I'm going to be reading Luke 15, 11 through 24. Then Jesus said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants." 
And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now Adam and Eve succumbed to temptation, but the prodigal son traded his relationship with his father for revelry in the world. Look at verse 12. Here's where it starts. He says, Father, give me. Give me. That's usually the attitude that begins a downward and wayward spiral. When we begin to think that we deserve more than we are getting and we start living to get it. This attitude expresses itself in selfishness, self-centeredness, being self-consumed, making your life all about you and what you want. Galatians 5, we looked at last week the fruits of the Spirit. In opposition to those are the works of the flesh, which is characterized by this give-me attitude. He says in verse 19 of Galatians 5, the works of the flesh are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This give-me attitude is characterized by a love of money and a love of pleasure. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith. Some of you have strayed from God because of your love for materialistic possessions. And it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Know this, that in the last days... Perilous times will come. Well, we're in some of those perilous times, are we not? Pay attention. God's got us. Our, God's got our attention. He says men will be what? Lovers of themselves. This give me attitude. Lovers of money. Boasters. Proud. Blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. Unthankful. Unholy. Unloving. Unforgiving. Slanderers. Without self-control. Brutal. Despisers of good. Traitors headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does this not characterize that give-me self-centered attitude? Well, this life is also characterized by immorality. Now, in chapter Luke 15, verse 30, the older brother accused his little brother that this was his problem. Notice the older brother said that this son of yours has devoured your livelihood with harlots. Now, we don't know for sure that that was part of his prodigal living, but no doubt it was a real possibility. But immorality is a part of this self-indulgent lifestyle. And all of these things put together represent the far country. That's where he was. If you look in verse 13, he journeyed to a far country. 
The son ran away from the one who loved him unconditionally. Our selfishness blinds us to the love that's already being given us and the contentment we can have with our Heavenly Father. But understand this, you cannot have it both ways. One leads away from the other. The Bible says, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve two masters. You will love the one and hate the other, or you will cling to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or the things of this world. 1 John 2.15 says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Some of you are in the far country. You are far from the one who loves you unconditionally. You've gone your own way, and that way has taken you far from God. The Bible says that's true of every man at some point in his life. Isaiah 53.6 says, All of we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way. Well, we've all done that. The question is, have you come back to God? Take a moment with me to consider where this give me self-centered attitude takes you. Look at verse 13 of our text. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal or riotous living. You see, this type of life is a wasteful life. It consumes you. You may start off with a pocket full of money, but eventually you're broke and you'll do almost anything to earn a buck to feed your selfish way of life. When you're far from God, you live a wasteful life. There's only one source of a full and meaningful life, and Jesus said it. He said the devil comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And some of you, that's the life you're living. The devil's got you. But Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Look at verse 14. This wasted life leads to emptiness. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine and he began to be in want. He spent all that he had, and he still wasn't satisfied. That's the same today. You're not the exception. You won't, you won't be the one that gets away with worldliness and selfishness. That's the way it goes without the Lord. Emptiness. People spend their time and their money and their energy pursuing the things of this world at the neglect of God, thinking that it will bring them joy and contentment, only to find out that they got to keep spending more and more to keep that thrill alive, kind of like a drug addict. And in the end, they find that they still have nothing that's truly valuable, nothing that brings lasting joy and contentment. Hebrews eleven twenty five 25 refers to this as the passing pleasures of of sin. When the money is spent and the fun runs out, what do you have left? One pastor related this true story about a famous billionaire. All he ever really wanted in life was more. He wanted more money, so he parlayed inherited wealth into a billion-dollar pile of assets. He wanted more fame, so he broke into the Hollywood scene and soon became a filmmaker and a star. 
He wanted more sensual pleasures, so he paid handsome sums to indulge his sexual appetites. He wanted more thrills, so he designed, built, and piloted the fastest aircraft in the world. He wanted more power, so he secretly dealt political favors so skillfully that two U.S. presidents became his pawns. All he ever wanted was more. He was absolutely convinced that more would bring him true satisfaction. Unfortunately, history shows otherwise. He concluded his life emaciated, colorless, sunken chest, fingernails and grotesque inches-long corkscrews, rotting black teeth, tumors, and innumerable needle marks from his drug addiction. Howard Hughes died believing the myth of more. He died a billionaire junkie and insane by all reasonable standards. You see, living for yourself away from God never brings satisfaction. Even to the unbeliever and to the atheist, you're just pretending like a little child that all is well with you and deep down you know your life's a big joke. Is that how you want to live the rest of your life? Is that how you want to die? Now go back to verse 14. And notice what happens between this young man spending all he had and then beginning to be in want. What's that phrase in between there? It says there arose a famine in the land. Do you think that was an accident? Or could that have been orchestrated by God? Could this famine be an instrument to demonstrate to this boy that he was hungry for God? What his soul really needs and what your soul really needs and wants is the Lord. David came to that conclusion, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I consider this phrase about the famine arising an intervention from God. A wake-up call. Could God be using COVID-19 as an intervention in the lives of His people and this world? Could it be a wake-up call that He's sending to us? You would think that by now in this story, this young man would have come to his senses and gone back home to his father. But he hadn't hit bottom yet. You know, it's quite sad to watch a loved one go through this process. When you think they must be at their lowest point, ready to turn their life around, they maintain their rebellious ways. That's because of the selfishly stubborn nature of sinful man. It's not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. Sinful man cannot make this world a better place. In fact, when God's people are taken out of here, and then we find our, this world finds themselves in the great tribulation, here's what we read about the nature of sinful man in Revelation 9, 20 and 21. After God sends all of these uh, judgments upon the earth, the bold judgments and the trumpet judgments and so forth. It says, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. 
that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So you see, even though God brought discipline, there were still multitudes who would not repent. I pray that's not you. I pray that God would use these days and these times to cause his people and many others to come to him. Verse 15, the question is, so what do they do? What do prodigals do at this point? Instead of turning to God and going back home, verse 15 reveals that they're still trying to rescue themselves. He went out and joined himself to a citizen of that country. You see, prodigals who are living away from God think they can work it out on their own, that they can get their lives back together without repentance. So they join themselves with a citizen of that country. What country, again, was the prodigal son in? Go back to verse 13. He was in the far country, far from God. You see, the world's philosophy is to get by with a little help from your friends. Like the Beatles song. You probably know the one I'm talking about. It goes like this. I'm not going to sing it. I'll spare you. What do I do when my love is away? Does it worry you to be alone? How do I feel by the end of the day? Are you sad because you're on your own? No, I get by with a little help from my friends. Mm, Get high with a little help from my friends. I'm going to try with a little help from my friends. Do you need anybody? I need somebody to love. Could it be anybody? I want somebody to love. The world tries to soothe the ache in their heart with the wrong kind of love and the wrong kind of high. This is a very predictable action that all prodigals take at this point. They find somebody just like them with the same spirit of rebellion and join forces with them hoping to get some help. Because you see, at this point, the prodigals know they need help, but they're looking for it in all the wrong places. And of course, that brings up another song. Johnny Lee wrote that song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. Here's some of the lyrics to that song, and it fits what we're talking about today. I spent a lifetime looking for you. Single bars and good time lovers were never true. Playing a fool's game, hoping to win. And telling those sweet lies and losing again. And I was alone then, no love in sight. I did everything I could to get me through the night. I don't know where it started or where it might end. I turned to a stranger just like a friend. And you came a-knocking at my heart's door. You're everything I've been looking for. There's no more looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in too many faces. Searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of. Now that I found a friend and a lover, God blessed the day I discovered you. Oh, you looking for love. The friend and the lover that you're looking for is Jesus Christ. You won't find a better one. He is what your soul is dreaming of. He is what you need to discover real life. So if you're a Christian this morning and you've strayed from God, you know you're empty. It's time to come back home to him. Or if you're lost and undone, you've never been saved. You're not going to find what you're looking for in the world. It's time to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the friend that's closer than a brother. 
Now look at verse 16. Look at how far down this boy was. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods or the corn cobs that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. Verse 15 says that this, this citizen that he had joined himself to sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Most times when a prodigal joins forces with someone in the far country hoping to get help, the help he receives is like a pig pen. You may get to live in a house, but it's a crack house. You may get a job, but it's a pig pen job. And understand, this is not a slam against any kind of job. Rather, it's showing the steep decline of a wayward soul. You see, to Jews, pigs were unclean. And no good Jew would have anything to do with pigs. You remember when Jesus cast the demons out of the man legion? He had so many demons, they named themselves together legion. And when he cast them out, he sent them into a herd of pigs. You see, unclean spirits belong in an unclean animal. And this Jewish boy from a good, loving home is now doing the despicable just to survive. And at this point, he's still stubborn. He's still empty. He's still friendless. He's still alone. No one gave him anything. Back with his father, he had everything he wanted. But away from the father, he finds little help, little comfort, little relief, and no mercy from anyone. Now, in verse 17, the plot begins to take a turn. The beginning of a turning point in this boy's life when it says he came to himself. He finally realized his deplorable life and his desperate situation for what it was. He finally saw where he was. He finally saw how far he had fallen. For in the last part of verse 17, it says, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and yet I perish with hunger. He realized that the problem was him, not his father. The problem was him, not anyone else. That's another thing prodigals do is they blame everybody else. They even blame society for all their woes. When a prodigal is ready to return, they realize the problems with them. They own their troubles. Even though this realization is a step in the right direction, it's still not enough. You see, many prodigals realize where they are and that they're not happy. But they do nothing about it. They reflect on how good they had it before they went astray, but they're still not willing to do what it takes to have that life again. But verse 18 tells us this prodigal did. He made a decision in his heart. He said, I will arise and go back to my father. Notice that two-word phrase, I will and he says it twice in this verse, I will. You see, it has to be an act of your will. You must decide in your heart that you will, not may, not try, but I will turn away from my sin and I will turn back to God. It has to be from your will. With all your heart, return to the Lord. Verse 19 there was an awareness of his unworthiness. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Whereas, remember in verse 12, there was this sense of entitlement. But now he recognizes how unworthy he is to even ask to come back. And now he's willing to just be a servant instead of a son. 
One thing prodigals struggle with right here is that they become overwhelmed with their own unworthiness. That they feel that they cannot come back to God. I've gone too far. I've strayed too far. Listen, in this series, I've got a message God's working on about a man in the Bible who had strayed so far. He had done so many despicable things that you wouldn't think that God would take him back. I can't wait to share that one with you. But listen, there's no person too far. The Bible says the, the arm of the Lord is not shortened that it cannot save. Wherever you are, God can save you. And this is where you don't need to feel too un unworthy. Yes, we are all unworthy. But we're, the devil wants to make us think that we've sinned and strayed too much, too far. The Bible says God is ready to forgive. In verse 20, not only did he decide in his heart, I will. It says, verse 20, and he did. He arose and came back to his father. Will you do that today? Will you make that decision in your heart? I will return back to God. You know where you are. You know who you are. I don't know who you are, but God knows your heart. And, and chances are, you know where you are in your relationship with God. You know you're, you're not as close as you used to be. You know if you are straying from him. You know if you're lost and undone. God's spirit is speaking to you today, and he's drawing you back. And you must make the decision today, I will. And don't just say it, but do it. Do it. Come back to the Lord. He arose and came to the Father. The Son not only made a decision in his heart, he decided with his feet and with his mouth to return to his Father. Look at verse 21. He confessed his sin. He said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's what we do when we come back to God. We confess, God, I've sinned. I've made a mess of my life, and I'm not even worthy to ask your forgiveness and to be restored. But the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Will you return to the Lord? Listen, I want to tell you something. This parable here that Jesus told is not so much about the prodigal son as it is about the compassionate father. Because if you would look in, the, in this parable at what the father does. And Jesus uses this to illustrate how our heavenly father treats any sinner who will return to him. Look at the actions the father takes towards repentant and returning sinners. Look at verse 20. It says, when the father... While he was still a great way off, the father saw him. You know, the father sees you. He sees you right where you are. You're still a far way off, but he sees you. Notice next in verse 20, and he had compassion. You say, yeah, he sees me and he hates me. No, he sees you and he sees what you're doing. He sees what you've been doing. Nothing has escaped his attention, but he loves you. He's never stopped loving you. His love is unconditional and constant. Verse 20, again, another action. He saw, he loves, and look at it. It says, and he ran. He ran. The only time we ever see God in a hurry is when he's coming after lost sinners, wayward sinners. He runs to meet them. You see, this is comforting for me because it tells me that God meets me where I am the moment I turn to him. 
He's not waiting for me to get all the way back to where I used to be. In fact, I can't get all the way back to where I used to be on my own. I have to have his help. So he runs to meet me where I am, and he helps me start from that point, a brand new life, and he'll do the same for you. He sees, he loves, he runs in verse 20 again, and he fell on his neck and kissed him. Hey, that's going to be going on pretty much when we get back together again. We're going to fall on each other's necks and start kissing. We ain't been able to shake hands or hardly bump fists or anything. But, buddy, when we get back, that greet each other with a holy kiss, that's going to have a whole new meaning. But, friends, we want to know, we want to understand, I want you to understand that God embraces repentant sinners. He embraces, he fell on his neck and he kissed him. And and, and notice that this son had not even started his little speech yet, his little repentant speech. The father did not hear one word of that. And even when the son gave that speech, the father almost went on without, he knew the heart of his son. And he fell on his neck and he embraced him and kissed him. The father sees, the father loves, the father runs, the father embraces. And look at verse 22, the father restores, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. You know what the father saying? No, son, you will not be a servant. You're going to be my son again. You always have been my son. You've just strayed, but now you're back home, and I'm giving you full rights and privileges just like you always had. He restores. He will restore you. And lastly, verse 23 and 24, he celebrates. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Nothing delights God more than when a sinner repents and turns to him. That's what the whole chapter of Luke 15 is about. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, all being found. And the rejoicing and the celebration that takes place. You see, the Father is waiting for you. He wants to shower you with His unconditional love and give you everything you need for a joyful, meaningful life. I just read this verse yesterday. And in light of what we're going through and in light of this message, it has a whole different meaning. You see, David had done something very wrong. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her her husband murdered, and then he tried to cover it up. God disciplined David. The child that was conceived died. And God said, what you've done in secret, he said, I'm through your descendants, I'm going to make, it's going to be done publicly. Well, David had some sons. He had some wayward sons. Once one of those sons was Absalom. Absalom was known for his long hair and his good looks. But David, Absalom had done something very bad, and David had banished Absalom from the kingdom. So Joab, David's general, contrived a plan. He he hired this woman from Tekoa to go give this story to David to help David see what he was doing in a different light in order that David might be willing to bring Absalom home. And so this woman, here's what she says to David. In verse 13 of 2 Samuel 14, So the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? 
For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, and that the king does not bring his banished ones home again. For we will surely die. Let me read it in New Living Translation. All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, listen to this, He devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from Him. You reckon COVID-19 would be one of the ways that He's devised to bring us back to Him? When everything in our lives, not everything, but a lot of our busyness and activity has been cut off. You think God devised that to bring us back to Him? A nation, yea, a world, back to Him? It was a bright Sunday morning in 18th century London. But Robert Robinson's mood was anything but sunny. All along the street, there were people hurrying to church. But in the midst of the crowd, Robinson was a lonely man. The sound of church bells reminded him of years past when his faith in God was strong and the church was an integral part of his life. It had been years since he set foot in a church. Years of wandering, disillusionment, and gradual defection from the God he once loved. That love for God, once fiery and passionate, had slowly burned out of him, leaving him dark and cold inside. Robinson heard the clip-clop, clip-clop of a horse-drawn cab approaching behind him. Turning, he lifted his hand to hail the driver. But then he saw that the cab was occupied by a young woman dressed in finery for the Lord's day. He waved the driver on. However, the woman in the carriage ordered the carriage to be stopped. Sir, I'd be happy to share this carriage with you, she said to Robinson. Are you going to church? Robinson was about to decline. Then he paused. Yes, he said at last, I'm going to church. He stepped into the carriage and sat down beside the young woman. As the carriage rolled forward, Robert Robinson and the woman exchanged introductions. There was a flash of recognition in her eyes when he stated his name. That's an interesting coincidence, she said, reaching into her purse. She withdrew a small book of inspirational verse. She opened it to a ribboned bookmark and handed the book to him. I was just reading a verse by a poet named Robert Robinson. Could it be? He took the book, nodding. Yes, I wrote those words years ago. Oh, how wonderful, she exclaimed. Imagine, I'm sharing a carriage with the author of these very lines. But Robinson barely heard her. He was absorbed in the words he was reading. They were words that would one day be set to music and become a great hymn of the faith, familiar to generations of Christians. Come, thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. His eyes slipped to the bottom of the page where he read, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. 
Seal it for thy courts above. He could barely read the last few lines through the tears that brimmed in his eyes. I wrote those words, and I lived those words, prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I loved. The woman suddenly understood. She said, you also wrote, here's my heart, O take and seal it. You can offer your heart again to God, Mr. Robinson. It's not too late. And it wasn't too late for Robert Robinson. In that moment, he turned with his whole heart back to God and walked with him the rest of his days. Dear friend, it's not too late for you. Return to God with all your heart. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for being that kind of father. Thank you for being the kind of father that sees us even in our selfish pride and wickedness and still loves us. You see us in, our, in the far country. And Lord, you have devised ways to bring us back to you. I believe COVID-19 is one of those ways you're drawing people back to you. Accomplish your purposes, Lord, that multiplied millions as your gospel is being preached on the internet many times over today, that it would reach to the ends of the earth, calling people out of their sin and their waywardness to come home to you, the Heavenly Father, by trusting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Thank you for being that kind of merciful, compassionate God. You've done everything needed to bring me home and give me forgiveness. When you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, and He died on that cross And he took my place and he shed his blood instead of my blood. And he rose again. It was for me. And it was for every sinner in this world. Oh God, I pray, draw people to yourself. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer. Thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. As June